This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I have quite a few people come to me, um, being a pastor here at Cornerstone, and talk to me about doubts that they're experiencing. And typically, um, they have this, I don't know, sort of emotional posture where, where, um, you know, they're not talking about specific issues. They're talking about the doubts, sort of generally speaking. And um, there's a lot of anxiety behind it because um, they think that the doubts are, in some sense, a, a sign of spiritual deadness or, or um, that they're apostatizing or something like that. Um, but uh, what's interesting is, um, you know, they're, they're adopting this the sort of uh, framework that they've received about uh, what doubts might be and, and particularly just this issue of like, how do I fight these? Like, what is the, what is the sort of spiritual warfare tactics that are necessary mm. for this? But, um, um, I, you know, in most cases that I've had conversations with people about, um, when I start drilling deeper into what's going on, um, there's a there's a really complicated picture that emerges of about the overall sort of mental health difficulties that that person is facing. So there's often some sort of crisis point that they don't bring up right away uh, that's happening in their lives at that moment. But then there's also these sort of layers of of different difficulties uh, in their social groups or in their upbringing or um, and so I. I have found that in most cases, when people uh, talk to me about doubts, they're actually talking about um, a sort of deep underlying emotional uh, layer of dysfunction, which has started to surface. And especially these days, because, um, you know, the pandemic has sort of raised the water level emotionally for everybody. Um, Mm. It's turned things that would be manageable tensions into crisis points and flashpoints. And so um, you're seeing this you know, rise in, in mental health difficulties, especially um, in college kids, because that's a terrible uh, time as it is. I mean, that that's the time when mental health difficulties hit. But yeah, right. we have a we have a large college ministry. You're seeing a, a tremendous lot rise in that, and um, I think that people are largely unaware of uh, the sort of embodied factors that that play in. Um, in their spiritual thoughts, um, in, in, in their belief patterns. And oftentimes just, even just that initial conversation with a person where, where you're talking about, look, it seems like you've got a lot of stressful things happening in your life. It's like, Oh, <laughs> like the, there's almost like the urgency of the situation is a major contributor to the doubt. And they walk away from that conversation saying, Oh, I, you know, maybe I don't have to go into panic about this. And, and the, the doubts sort of subside on their own, just sort of putting it into context. Um, so that's a major pastoral task that I'm doing is, is just trying to, um, trying to, I guess, talk people off the ledge when it comes to uh, um, their, their spiritual condition and, and point out the emotional causes that are underlying it. So when you're confronted with that situation, and, and I, I see it as well here in my office hours, um, 
often doubts raised from reading scripture. They're like, wait, scripture says a lot of things that I didn't know it said. <laughs> lots of, there's lots mm-hmm. of stuff going on there that I didn't know was going on in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you can see there's some, you know, there's some tussle with their, their parents going on in the background and there's some tussle with their right. tradition. There's, they're, they moved away, you know, those, those factors of life stress, they've moved away, new friends, new food, new living place. And, and if anything goes off, you know, like a, a friend has a mental health issue or someone dies in their family or their dog died, you see how like a dog dying can like send somebody off into never, never land emotionally. So, but that doesn't mean their doubts aren't in some way real. And, yeah. and I think you and I understand doubt, meaning not that I just have blind skepticism, but that I actually am like starting to inhabit some other way of viewing the world in order to cast doubt on what I, the way I have mm-hmm. viewed the world should, is, is there a, I think some people would say like, but you have to deal with those doubts, right? Is, is yeah. do you ever like take on the intellectual aspect, what, what we might typically flatly call just the intellectual side of the doubt, the plausibility of the doubt, or do yeah. you go straight for the emotional heart of the issue and uh, say like your doubts don't matter. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think one thing that, uh, you and I have in common is that we're both a fan of Michael Polanyi. Uh, yes. I've, uh, I've been a member of the Polanyi society. I think you have as well. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, Polanyi talks about, um, you know, uh, paradigms, um, ac- academic paradigms as, as sort of these systems of pattern recognition, um, and, um, you know, in a lot of ways, he sort of anticipated what Kuhn said in the structure of scientific revolutions. Kuhn that, probably plagiarized a little bit off of him. Sure. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that, that's the, uh, that's the less generation. party line there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the less generous uh, way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but it's, the Kuhn's work is fascinating because it, it talks about this cycle, right? Where you, where you, um, have this, um, this paradigm that's reigning and then it starts to become problematized. Um, but I think what's interesting about, I, I, I sort of view, um, I sort of view my Christian faith in that way is it's, it's, it's the paradigm that makes sense of all the facts of the world. Um, mm-hmm. and not just biological or material facts, but also moral. Um, uh, mm-hmm. and, um, I think that um, people, when they get into doubts like this, they're getting into that sort of problematized area where maybe they're not quite yet considering an alternate paradigm, but, they, but they're sort of tempted to because those doubts exist. But what problematizes it when it comes to big picture uh, uh, meta-narrative issues is, is intellectual issues and emotional issues together. And so um, I don't think we should set them against each other. I just, I just have found that, um, you know, well, let's let me put it this way. A lot of my personal conversations, I'm addressing the the emotional issues, but my day job is teaching theology. We we do a biblical right. theological sweep, and um, I find that um, when we finish a year, I'll have students come to me, and um, in fact, I had a student write this to me just the other day that um, she said she's not scared anymore <laughs> uh, because telling the whole story of scripture within its uh, ancient context and hyperlinked Old and New Testament, you begin to sort of understand that this is, uh, this is a narrative that has tremendous power uh, because it has tremendous explanatory power of, to explain the world, to explain myself, to explain what I'm thinking and feeling and, and um, biological facts and moral facts and mm-hmm. all these things. 
And so, um, you know, yeah, you do have to deal with, with both. I just, I find that the default mode for most people is that they assume that their emotional difficulties have a primary, primarily spiritual cause. Mm. Um, and what I'm trying to point out, um, is that our emotions are bound up in, you know, our beliefs, our spiritual beliefs, what we think about God, how we prioritize him, all that, but also in, you know, what was your childhood like, or, you know, how stressful it is to relocate and to start, uh, a, uh, a college education and to try and figure out what your career path is and to switch majors four times and, um, mm. to be dumped by your boyfriend and all of these things end up sort of bleeding into this overall sense of whether my story is compelling. Hmm. Interesting. turns out studies have shown that uh, emotions also reign in our mathematic understanding of the world, our logical understanding of the world, like emotions are fully integrated. Uh, mm -hmm. e even in learning mathematics, uh, there's been lots of studies to show that your emotional dispositions can enable or inhibit uh, learning mathematics. So mm. yeah, I think that kind of splitting these things out, my rational side versus my emotional side is probably unhelpful in most cases. But you're, you're saying that if there's deep disturbance uh, in a, the emotional stability, if that, if that wiggles enough, it kind of wiggles the whole structure of how we think about ourselves in the world. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, and, and there's, you know, there's specific links too, right? I mean, like, um, when I, when I talk to people who, for instance, have had difficulty with their fathers, um, mm. uh, th there's oftentimes a, a deep distrust, um, with God as father, you know, that that's, uh, Jesus teaches us to pray our father who art in heaven. And, and if you've got, I mean, it, the concept father sort of clusters your experiences. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so if, if your experience with your father is, is abusive and self-seeking and manipulative and, and, uh, someone who cannot be trusted, uh, that bleeds over into how you view God. It sort of inevitably does. It becomes an embodied part of how you react to, to a father. Yeah. Uh, do you, are there any like uh, biblical passages or themes or threads that you would point to with how God deals with the doubts of Israel or Hebrews or Israelites? Hmm, that's a good. That's a good question. I I think of like uh, obvious ones like Abraham and Genesis fifteen. Like, how can I know that I shall possess the land? Uh, Moses, who <laughs> I don't know if it's doubts or he just object, flat out objects and says, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> um, yeah, he's yeah. confronted with the plan of God, Gideon the same way. Um, yeah, I, it's interesting just to trace out the kind of the interaction God has when people push back and go like, I, I don't see what you're, what you're thinking here, Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there, there, there is a sort of, um, Maybe there's a sort of doubt that's leaning in and a doubt that's leaning out or something like mm, that. Mm. Um, you know, I think of, um, uh, you know, I, I, I believe help my unbelief, right? Mm. Or, um, um, or even I was teaching Luke recently and just um, the um, uh, Gabriel's uh, interaction with uh, Zechariah, which again is a, a sort of repetition of of the Abrahamic, uh, this, this promised son. Mm -hmm. And, and he, it's the same sort of, how do I know? And, um, it's interesting that, uh, um, you know, there's, there, there's the reaffirmation of the blessing, but there's also the, that he, that Zechariah becomes mute until the child is born, um, as a, as a sort of, um, yeah, I, I, 
I'm not sure exactly how to, it's, it's a sort of acknowledgement of that, of that, um, doubt, but also, uh, an affirmation that, um, that, uh, God is still good. He's still good to provide mm-hmm. even in the midst of it. Um, yeah. I, I also think Mary's a foil there though. Um, so that Mary's response is supposed to be set against Zacharias. Right. Yeah. Um, by, by foil, you mean she's, she's, spotting the dots, watching them connect, treasuring things up in her heart. Right. Yeah. Speaking yeah. poetically, Hannah, like as the one who seems to understand what has happened and what is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it, or, or, you know what, another great example is, um, um, in the gospel of John too, right? I mean, the, the gospel of John is about, um, is, is a lot about connecting the signs is, is seeing, right. I mean, he's, he's a sort of an authoritative guide for, for how you should see the signs of Jesus life. Um, that he, it's ex, his explicit purpose at the end of the book to write it so that right. you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the, the son of the living God. Um, but so he, he presents all these people who sort of ought to have seen the signs or can't quite see the signs. Uh, Nicodemus, I was just reading in John three, for instance, mm. where he's, there's some, uh, Jesus, Jesus answers him basically in a way which, which implies, uh, okay, you say that you, that, you know, I'm from God. <laughs> um, but you know, um, you sh- you ought to be able to read wh- what I'm doing as a, uh, to see that the kingdom of God is is among you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but the end of the book when when Jesus restores um, Thomas, uh, that's a really powerful scene too about how uh, Jesus deals with that doubt with with compassion and um, b- both confronts it and and is compassionate towards it, right? And and anticipates. Um future people who are going to struggle with this, the very mm-hmm. reality that they will not have seen, which is actually where the, the line comes from. Uh, you know, I wrote these many things I could have written, but I wrote these things so that you might trust that uh, mm-hmm. Jesus is the Christ. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's, it's, it, John's gospel ends almost sowing opistus, uh, which is the term that's translated doubt often there. I would say untrusting yeah. is probably how I would translate it. Yeah. Um, sows it into the nature of the community that this is going to happen. This is a reality, but um, we yeah. have we have something that helps us. So yeah, well, and and yeah, even ahead. Jesus, even Jesus' restoration of Peter, right? I mean, the, yeah, the the ultimate expression of doubt is is Peter's denial, but Jesus is kind enough to say, "You are going to do this." He does it, and then afterward, he restores him with the threefold uh, feed my lambs or uh, tend my sheep, um, which is again that's. That's one of the callings of of a good shepherd. He's he's not just restoring him; he's commissioning him as an under shepherd. Um, and a shepherd, according to Jeremiah twenty three, is someone who um, doesn't leave the sheep discouraged or afraid, right. but uh, a, a non scatterer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Actually, and I'm, I'm teaching on, um, preaching on First Peter five this weekend, mm. and uh, it's the, the amazing words of Peter to all of these elders that he's never met before. This general letter, or maybe he has met some of them, as a fellow elder um, and a fellow shepherd of the flock of God, um, mm-hmm. and, a, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Which I always stop and say. Now, what what is he actually saying when he says he was a witness of the suffering of Christ? He seems to be like appealing to the fact that he ran away, that he rejected at that point. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. That that I don't know if you've encountered this, but 
There's kind of like the doubt where I'm mulling things over my head and I'm trying to piece it together and I can't work it out and it bothers me. Yep. And then there's like the Peter, I'm out of here. Right. <laughs> like, sure, sure, sure. like my entire body is saying, nope, 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 nope. Uh, yeah. And I mean, how would you categorize, do you see those in the church today split that way as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, uh, the, I mean, the, when you say that, the, um, the most, I, I don't know, one of the more difficult biblical texts that uh, comes to mind for me is, is Lamentations, um, mm. which, uh, I mean, obviously everybody knows Lamentation 3, but um, people forget that the end of the book is, unless you have forsaken us forever. Um, and that's a pretty serious, I mean, it's, it, that's the cataclysmic moment of the Old Testament. It's, it's the, uh, um, the worst tra- tragedy in the history of the nation, right? Um, but that line comes in the midst of a prayer. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there is a, a sort of breaking point where um, someone goes from leaning in to leaning out, <laughs> where, uh, where, where someone just decides, um, no, I, I, I've got to do this. I've got to take this, you know? And I, I think all of us go through these sort of patterns where we, where we want that independence. We want to grasp for control. Um, um, but there's a difference between a, sort of a settled determination to take independence and, and grasp control and the sort of, um, you know, cycles that, that we all go through um, um, in our, um, yeah, just in our, in our struggle against uh, sin in our lives. Right? Yeah. Um. I wonder what you think the role of apologetics training, like classic apologetics, the kind where you learn the arguments, uh, you kind of learn what the worst arguments against Christianity are, um, and then you think about what are the best arguments in favor of it, um, what role those play, maybe preemptively, or, I mean, have you ever handed somebody an apologetics book and said, here, go read these arguments, that'll solve your doubts? Yeah. So that's actually a question that I ask everybody who asks uh, me about their doubts is I say, do you think an apologetics book would help? And I've yet to get a yes on that, uh, which, <laughs> which maybe that's just, a, a, you know, why they're coming to talk to me is because they right. know what they're going to get. I, who knows? But, um, but I, you, you know, it's, it's easier for me to speak from personal experience than it is to, um, to sort of talk broadly about what apologetics is good for. But, um, you know, I went through a period of profound doubt my sophomore year of high school, especially I, I would privately didn't, didn't know if I believed in God. Um, and it was also a se- season of depression. So who knows chicken mm-hmm. or egg there. But, um, um, for me, um, I didn't, uh, you, you know, the arguments against Christianity, I mean, it was just a, it was a mountain of implausibilities because I, I had, I'd been in a context where I didn't really get um, a lot of intelligent conversation about, um, you know, the resurrection or, you know, proofs for the existence of God or any of those things that that just wasn't part of my language. And so, um, it might've been helpful for me, um, to, to have those tools in my toolbox. But, um, the reason that I love Polanyi is actually because, um, uh, Esther Meek is probably one of the, probably the biggest, inf- one of the biggest influences for me in terms of my full-hearted embrace of Christianity was um, I began to see that um, um, the, 
I'm never going to get to sort of an airtight certainty about everything that I think is important in the world. <laughs> um, like mm-hmm. it's just not within my, it's not within our grasp. And the, and uh, I mean, your book, Biblical Knowing too, um, was, was really helpful. Um, it, it really comes down to, uh, to who you um, adopt as an authoritative guide and, and what, um, you know, whether your worldview is actually accounting for, for all the things in reality that need to be accounted for. And so um, apologetics for me has been um, largely um, sort of um, on the backside of embracing the gospel, um, mm-hmm. sort of uh, reducing heartburn about certain things. Mm-hmm. But it's never been why I believe. I believe uh, because uh, Christ died and, and the gospel is compelling. Uh, Christ died and was raised and, and the gospel is compelling. And, and I think that um, God has opened my eyes to, to appreciate the beauty of, of that, um, that story, that, that narrative that, he's, that he's, uh, he's living. So it's never been a foundational piece to me, but it has been um, really helpful. And I think the most helpful part about apologetics for me has also been just evaluating not just my worldview, but other worldviews. I'm really good at seeing the flaws in my worldview but I wasn't good at seeing the flaws in other worldviews. And um, mm. for me, I would have been a materialist, um, except right. that materialism destroys uh, meaning and beauty and truth and, and all these things. So Frederick Nietzsche was the best Christian apologetics, uh, apologist that I read because yeah. it was just like, oh, yeah, okay, this is what, this is what it's like to, to be a consistent materialist. Yeah, yeah, m- mostly consistent. Even he couldn't yeah, keep a straight right, face sure. all the time. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and I... And I I I might even add in there that for me, Esther was a mentor of mine, obviously. And mm-hmm. um, I would view her as a great apologist. So yeah. like, I, I would just say like, that's the kind of apologetics that helps incorporate. And of course she doesn't say, Oh, well, all that other stuff is hooey. Yeah. She just says, when you contextualize all this other apologetic material within this kind of larger, it's trusting mm-hmm. turtles all the way down. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's actually how it's designed uh, to be. There's a great mm-hmm. relief in that, I think, uh, too. And I think what Esther did for me is she helped connect kind of the, the, the biblical narrative to the actual sciences that I once won, wanted to practice. You know, I wanted to be a social scientist. Um, yes. And I was really like, I was really into statistical method and research design. And I thought like that was the best way to know things. And, and there's a sense in which the biblical authors, I think, would affirm, like, that is actually a really good way to know things. And the trusting community where you're all working together, pointing at reality, letting reality shape and mm-hmm. form and, and reform your views. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, as far as apology, she, she was the best apologist I could have in my life uh, at that time uh, when I was a new Christian. So, yeah. No, I, so while we're on the topic of Esther Meek, let me just expand my appreciation for her. Because, uh, I, I mean, you Estimate. can't appreciate her more yeah. than I can. <laughs> <laughs> Challenge accepted, Drew. Uh, but yeah, so Esther Meek and the Polanyi Society, um, you know, obviously the Polanyi's book, Personal Knowledge, um, is about the personal coefficient that's necessary for, for any um, belief. I mean, there, you're, uh, there's a commitment that's, that's required, uh, that faith seeks understanding regardless of what you're studying. Um, and that commitment requires you to adapt to the thing that you're trying to learn about. So, um, you know, if you need to learn about wolverines, you got to spend, you got to be really committed to getting where they are to learn about their patterns. Uh, you can dissect them, but that's not really knowing them. 
and that was what Esther really helped me with is that God is a person. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so he should be known uh, as persons are known. Uh, but the other thing was that what you just mentioned, just seeking reality within the trusting community. Um, reality uh, is, is uh, revealed. It's out there uh, for us to know. And, um, you know, to, to seek reality in its multifaceted nature acor- mm. and knowing the aspects of reality according to how those aspects are known really opened up the possibility of me seeing the, the Bible as, um, you know, God's explicit revelation within the context of how he's generally revealed himself mm. and that I can trust him as my authoritative God, guide to try and understand reality. And so that's yeah. been... That's been, a, I mean, that's really the sort of methodological commitment that underlies my work so far is I'm a theologian who seeks reality primarily under the authority of scripture, but, uh, but seeks reality wherever it may be found. So, and I've been working on this on a recent book project uh, oh, the one for the Henry Center um, at uh, Trinity. The dealing with this question of we we both. So you and I would agree that the real world not only reveals God, but it actually can correct our misunderstandings in some ways. Yes. But at the same time, the real world is fractured. It's it's broken. It's twisted. It's cancerous in some ways. And so, how do you deal with that? Uh, both in that that the the mountains do bow and and the rocks cry out, uh, but they do so in some ways twistedly uh, yeah, towards the yeah. d- d- towards the truer reality that we we will hopefully all eventually know. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that this is. Um, I, I I often feel like a bit of an outsider in the theological world because I I tend to I tend to find uh, methodological conversations a little bit. Um, I don't know, a little boring, a little beside the point, um, because to me, um, reality needs to be sought skillfully, <laughs> um, and it needs to be sought uh, under the tutelage of a guide. And so, for instance, my you know my work is on the borders of theology and psychology, and and I just assume that if I if I'm going to get psychology right, like I need to be translating the Old and New Testament regularly, you know, mm-hmm. like. I need to know the, the the text of scripture really, really well so that I have a, a thorough, thoroughly robust uh, biblical lens that I'm bringing to uh, other ways of engaging with reality. And so, um, you know, the, the real world is cracked in, in a lot of ways. Um, but that, that personal coefficient that, that I am someone who sits under God's instruction is my prerequisite uh, for for coming to to strain out these things, and I think that a lot of people assume that, um, you know, you either should or shouldn't study psychology. Um, uh, if you shouldn't, it's because their methodology is all wrong, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm or saying, their anthropology well, is wrong. Yeah, right, right, and, and I'm saying, okay, well, fine, but come as a theologian and just pay attention to the realities that they're paying attention to. Mm. Uh, but if people say they you should study it. Um, then my complaint is often that they're not coming to the topic with a thoroughly biblical uh, anthropology or theology. And so what, what am I calling for? I'm calling for wise people, a tradition, a community of wise people who are thoroughly versed in the, in the scriptures and submitted to God 
but are also willing to pay attention to reality wherever it shows up. Hmm. And um, that's not easy. There's no method for that. That's like, that's, that takes the, in, the personal commitment to be the sort of person who really, really understands and faithfully lives the scriptures before you come to these things. Um, so I, there's no shortcut for that. You, you can't just sort of um, put that on a 10-step list. Hmm. Uh, so in closing, I wonder, because I can hear some people thinking, wait, does he mean that psychology has it all right? They're the ones who really know, and the rest of us are just kind of stuck with some Bible version of it? Or right. where, how, do, how do you deal with the authority claims of psychology, which, as you well know, can sometimes be rather extreme and absurd, <laughs> and absurd yeah. depending on which wings yeah. of uh, psychology you're in. So how do you deal with the mitigating those authority claims? Yeah. So, um, you know, every discipline is, is itself a, um, a trusting community. It's a, it, um, a discipline is a sociological group and disciplines tend to have stories about how, how the world is framed and, and that sort of informs the discipline. And so, I mean, I think that first and foremost, um, it's important to read psychology with an eye to what the story is and how that story grounds their, their authoritative claims. Um, I tend to read when I'm reading psychology, I tend to read things that I, I tend to read more neuroscience, honestly, because mm. they're, they're physiological uh, things that, that make sense uh, of, um, of um, human experience in ways that are deeply illuminating. I tend not to get into more speculative theories of, of, uh, drives and motivations and those sorts of things, because, um, you know, those are sort of more bound up into the, into the, I don't know, quasi religious meta narrative of, of the discipline itself. Um, so I, I'm coming as a theologian very definitely, but I, but I especially want to learn about, uh, physiological things. Um, I'm not sure if I entirely answered your question there, but I, um, I, I think it's, I think it's important to understand what grounds those claims, where those claims are coming for and, and where they're actually in conflict with conflict with the Christian story. Hmm. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that often scientists, because they don't have philosophical training, most of them, hmm. um, they, they won't actually know how to answer the question, what grounds your claims. Yeah, uh, sure. And so yeah. you can actually be uh, a partner in that, that and help them think about, uh, if, you know, I always say befriend good scientists and you'll always learn a lot and, and, um, they yes. will hopefully learn a lot from you as well. Yeah. A, lo a lot has been, a lot has been made of trauma. Uh, that's a mm. huge topic right now. Um, and, um, you know, the, the way that trauma sort of, uh, breaks the story of, of a person and, mm. um, and, the pathways out of that. So there's a lot of debate right now about like, um, you know, is it healthy to, to sort of, um, um, you know, foist, uh, a narrative on someone from the outside, um, or, or is healing, um, you know, finding autonomy or agency, um, to, to create your own story and create your own meaning. And that's, this is a clear area where, you know, I think that, um, we can learn a lot uh, from, um, you know, trauma literature in how, um, in how to be patient and slow and um, deeply engage with people in in ways that are healing experientially. Um, but we we're not uh, we're not giving up the fundamental 
reality that God is writing this narrative. Mm. <laughs> um, if you look, I mean, the, the Book of Lamentations is a great example of of where there's like a total narrative collapse. Like they just don't know what's next. But that doesn't mm. mean there was no next. <laughs> it just right. means that they, it was inaccessible to them, and that God was silent about what was next for that time. And it's it's really important that we learn to be slow and patient and live with people in that. Um, when they can't see what's next, but it also doesn't mean that we give up our fundamental uh, narrative. Uh, I think actually, um, you know, finding joy in suffering is is uh, one of the core Christian competencies that that we understand mm-hmm. that um, in the midst of all the brokenness, there is still tremendous joy in fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And so, mm-hmm. when we become a sort of cloud of witnesses for one another um, w- within that joy, that cultivates a, a hope that even if I can't see what's next, I can at least hope against hope that there is a next or that, mm. uh, that God is here with me in it. So, Well, Dr. Matthew Lapine, thank you for your wisdom and your time. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Drew. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 